Well, as we get going here, I'd like to invite you to uh, take your, your copy of um, The Fellowship of the Ring. And if you have that, uh, maybe it's, if you didn't bring your own, uh, if you can check the pew in front of you to see if there's a copy there uh, for our reading that we'll be doing. You know, if I actually did that, what would you think of that? Now, some of you might think, well, I kind of like Lord of the Rings, but yeah, Pastor, I don't know if that's really what we should be doing as far as the message instead of the Bible. It might be one thing to have an illustration uh, that's based on that, but uh, we really shouldn't be doing uh, maybe Lord of the Rings uh, instead of the Bible. But I want you to realize this. The way that many people think about the Bible, they think about the Scripture, there really wouldn't be a whole lot of difference if we came in here and we did a study on the Older New Testament or we did it on one of the volumes of Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. Because the way that many people think of Scripture, they think, well, this is a, a collection of inspiring stories that we have that are these, these myths that uh, teach us lessons in the human condition and how to live and explain life to us. But it wouldn't have to just be Scripture because there are lessons and things that we can get and inspiration that we could draw from uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. It's an incredibly detailed story, and there's all kinds of plots and th- things that we could think about uh, in this as well, too. And, it, I mean, it teaches us about uh, the, uh, the, the lust for power. It teaches us about uh, temptation. Uh, it teaches us about uh, a fellowship and sacrifice. It teaches us that second breakfast should be a thing. Uh, <laughs> But the way that many people think about Scripture, they think about uh, these uh, things, they're, they're stories that, that didn't really happen. But if you find your inspiration, if you can find this as, as source material to, to talk about and to uh, find ways to explain your life, then sure, you could, you could pick the Scripture. But you could also pick uh, Lord of the Rings or if you had something else. A lot of people like the, the Harry Potter books. And if you wanted to do Harry Potter instead, uh, that could be something that you decide that you're going to get together and study those and find your inspiration. Or if it's Star Trek or Star Wars or Game of Vampires or whatever it is, uh, that you can, you can pick and choose. And if we did that, well, then you don't have to have all this conflict in the world. Because just because you are picking your set of myths doesn't mean that somebody else can't pick their set of myths. And they don't have to contradict each other. It's just a matter of preference. You like this set of stories that inspires you and teaches you some lessons. But somebody else can like their set of stories. And why argue about that? It's a matter of personal preference. I'm saying that because this is the way a lot of people think about Scripture. This is the way, I'm afraid, a lot of uh, even pastors, churches, religion, theology, Bible professors at a lot of universities and schools, the way that they think about Scripture, but it is not the way that the Apostle Peter thought about Scripture. It's not a way that the Apostle Paul, any of the apostles, the biblical writers, and it's not the way that God viewed Scripture. So let's take a look at Scripture. And we are in Second uh, Peter and our passage for today is Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 18. And we're going to see the big idea that I want to get across in this message today 
is that your Christian faith is firm because it is grounded in reality. It is not a matter of fable or wishful thinking. It is grounded in reality. So let's read starting with verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we'll stop there for this week. First point that I want to make from this, uh, as we get into uh, looking especially at verse 16, is that Christianity is based on eyewitness testimony. It's not man-made myths. And we see that from verse 16. Again, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. The Greek word there is mythos. And that's where we get the word myths from. And this is not what Peter says that he or the apostles or us as Christians were following. We're not following myths. Not even very cleverly devised ones. Intricate, sophisticated myths. That's not what we're doing. But when he said we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus, but instead we were eyewitnesses that we saw these things, these are, that are truths that we have seen. So Christianity is it's not like the, the pagan myths that are in the world back in those times. We had Zeus and Apollos and all these uh, different things, the stories of Homer and the, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, which there were times where people believed those myths. And other times where maybe they didn't really believe them, but these were the stories that you know, gave life meaning and taught them different things. Uh, Peter is saying, no, it's not like that. This is something that is, this is reality. These are not mere stories that, sh- that shape and explain our lives. And today, it's not the way that many liberal theologians believe this. These are actual truths. This is actual history. I think to the extent that if you went back in time and you had a working uh, video camera, you could videotape these things that were happening. And do you believe that is how the biblical accounts are? Or are these mythological things? I was listening to a uh, esteemed professor once that was in uh, a university, and he was talking about his ordination, well, his interviews uh, to be at a certain school. And they were asking him questions about, you know, what do you believe as far as uh, Adam and Eve? And I didn't know which way this was uh, going to be going, but... Uh, he said that another uh, professor had given this very sophisticated answer about, uh, well, you know, Adam and Eve, it's, you know, basically describing it as as some sort of myth that uh, explains our reality and we all find ourselves in Adam and explains the fall for everyone. And they asked uh, this professor his opinion, like, and they even said, well, what, what do you think it would be like if you went back in time and you had a camcorder? What would you see? And he said, I think I would see two naked people with no belly buttons. And I was relieved because, all right, this professor, professor actually believes Adam and Eve the way that the Bible presents Adam and Eve. 
Now, we don't know for sure the belly button thing, but, you know, they didn't come from mom and dad, so there could be the case, no belly buttons. Uh, but I wonder how many people, you know, believe these truths about Scripture that are actual reality in time and space and history and geography, and that if you went back in time, you could witness and you could even videotape. And how many of these are just, you know, stories that are out there? And people say, well, they have a truth in them as stories, but they don't really exist in time and place. We say, no. Peter is saying these things actually happened. And he's saying, I, Peter is saying, I know this because I saw these things. I saw the coming of Christ. He's going to say, I saw the, the transfiguration. Uh, later on, he's also witness to the resurrection, but he's going to talk in this passage about this, the transfiguration and how amazing that was. But he knows that these things are true. He knows that they are reality because he saw these things. So we need to recognize that the apostles, they claimed to be eyewitnesses. We see that in this passage. It's in many places in Scripture as well, too. Let me read you. There's several times in the book of Acts that the apostles mention that they are eyewitnesses. One of them is, this is Peter talking Acts 10, 39 through 43. He says, And we are witnesses of all that he did, Jesus, uh, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree on the cross. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He's saying we're we're telling you this because we're appointed to share this message that we witnessed. We saw this happening and we are telling you this as a witness on a witness stand that Jesus Christ came, he did these miracles, he was put to death on the cross, and he rose again from the dead. And he did all of this to take the sins of those that will come to him. And he says, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. If you haven't received him and received that forgiveness, I pray that through this, that you would realize that, these, that Jesus Christ actually did come. And that Jesus Christ actually did go to the cross and raise from the dead again. And that you would put your faith in him and receive forgiveness, trusting in him. Other gospel writers, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard. Notice how many times he's saying this. We've seen it, we've heard it, and now we're proclaiming it to you. We proclaim it to you so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. One last one. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered just as those who were just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you most excellent theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, there's more passages we could look at, but ask yourself, if the authors of Scripture were trying to get across to you that these were actual things that actually happened, how could they have been more clear than this? We see all these different authors saying either that they saw it themselves, or Luke saying, I investigated this, I talked to the eyewitnesses, and I'm writing to you a report of from the eyewitnesses and the people that have seen these things. This is not a once upon a time in a land far, far away type of story. This is not some kind of mere myth. And so if you want to try and say, I want to keep my Bible because I like the Bible and I like these stories, but I don't want to have to believe these things actually happened, so let's have these be inspiring myths. That's not really an option for us. Because the writers of scriptures themselves make it really clear that they are claiming these things actually happened. They're not trying to write some kind of realistic fiction or anything along those lines. Uh, speaking of you know, fiction, uh, many of you have read The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. I made him some movies as well. You know, C.S. Lewis was a Christian. Uh, before he was a Christian, and even while he was a Christian, his, uh, his day job, he was a professor of, I believe it was medieval literature at Oxford. And so he studied myth, he studied legend, this was his expertise, and he was already famous as an expert and a professor in, in these areas. And he says this after uh, studying the New Testament, becoming a Christian, talking about this, um, he makes this statement. He says, All I am in private life is a literary critic and historian. That's my job. And I'm prepared to say on that basis, if anyone thinks the Gospels are either legends or novels, then that person is simply showing his incompetence as a literary critic. I've read a great many novels, and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among early people And I know perfectly well that the Gospels are not that kind of stuff. This is somebody that's an expert in legend, in myth, and saying this is not how the New Testament reads. That whether you believe it or you, even if you disbelieve it, you can't say that it reads the same way as these legends. It is claiming to be historical. It is claiming uh, to be fact. And he recognized this. He recognized that you either have to be willing to say that this is the truth or it is, uh, or it is just a blatant lie from people trying to deceive. But you can't just say that this is uh, some kind of benevolent legend that is, that is written. The authors here intended this to be taken as true statements. I want to talk a little bit about some of the evidence that we have. So we've seen that the biblical authors, they claim that these are eyewitnesses' accounts. They claim and state that this is actual historical accounts being written. But there are other things that we can look at, and there's many more that we could, but I want to give you a few that kind of shed light on the kind of of earmarks of 
ways that um, show us that this is real eyewitness testimony. And before I do that, let me give you just an example in contrast to that. And in order to do that, I want to talk about uh, the beloved uh, 1982 hit song, Africa, by the band Toto, which you probably didn't think, I bet Pastor's going to talk about uh, the song Africa by Toto today. Um, it's a great song. I like the song, okay? I'm not going to say, you know, do 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 but then it has a line in it, okay? And it talks about Africa and a bunch of other lyrics that don't make a whole lot of sense. But one line, it's always driven me crazy. I thought, this is the dumbest line, if you really think about this. It has a line in this that says, as sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti. Let me explain to you why I, th- I think this is a dumb lyric, okay? First of all, if you are thinking there's this majestic mountain, okay, Kilimanjaro in Africa, Tanzania, how shall I describe this? What shall I compare it to? Uh, in this, they compare it to Olympus. Okay, they're comparing, what is this mountain like? It's like this other mountain. Okay, first of all, it's, and not even that, it's a smaller mountain. Okay, Olympus is smaller than Kilimanjaro. So, it's just a pretty dumb comparison there to compare it. Not only just, it'd be dumb enough just comparing a mountain to a mountain, but then to uh, explain its grandeur by comparing it to a smaller mountain is, is pretty dumb. But that's not the point that I want to make here, as, as dumb as I think that is. The, the thing, and I didn't realize this until I read an article that pointed this out, is that Kilimanjaro is not in the Serengeti. That uh, they're both in Tanzania, but there's at least, Kilimanjaro is at least, 200-some miles away from the Serengeti. And you can't even see Kilimanjaro from anywhere in the Serengeti. You just can't. So to have this lyric that Kilimanjaro rising up, and there's pictures like this, uh, it's Africa and there's a giraffe, but that's actually from some park about 30 miles away. That's not the Serengeti Plains uh, in Africa. And so you realize that, okay, this is written by somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about. And actually, I've read uh, some interviews with the guy that wrote the song. And he, he says, supposedly, he wrote the song as somebody that only knows about Africa from what he's read in books. And so it's okay that these things don't make sense because it's supposed to be that way. And maybe that's what he intended or maybe that's his excuse. I don't know. But just think about this. Okay, I've never been to Africa. I wouldn't have noticed this. If somebody was a local, they'd be able to realize, oh, this doesn't make any sense. You can't see Kilimanjaro from the Serengeti. So with that in mind, uh, think of all the things in Scripture that are different, that would show that it's written by people that were in the area, that they, they know the situation, they, they know the facts on the ground. And if you were just trying to get this out of books, or if you're writing it from a, from a distance, it would be hard to do today, even with uh, the internet and Wikipedia and all these different things, but to do this back uh, 2,000 years ago with the limits of uh, technology and uh, access to information, it'd be just unrealistic to think about. So a few marks of eyewitness testimony. We've already mentioned this. The New Testament claims to be based on eyewitness testimony. You have to take those claims very seriously because it is claiming this. You can't get around it. But other marks of this, there are intimate knowledge of cities and geography that you see in Scripture. The Gospel writers mention 
at least 26 towns. And it's not just the famous and the big towns like uh, Jerusalem, but there are obscure small towns. And each of the Gospels contains unique information, so it can't be just the case that uh, one Gospel writer is just copying from a different one. That each of these, you know, have done their own research or were eyewitnesses or locals that were from the area. The information would, that you see in Scripture when you look at this would have been just um, unusually precise. And it'd be unrealistic to think that this would be an author who is not familiar with the area firsthand. I mean, there are details that sometimes we let skim right over us when it talks about someone going down from Jerusalem into Jericho. And we realize that if you live there, you would realize, yeah, you really do go down from Jerusalem into Jericho. It is, uh, Jerusalem is very high. Jericho is uh, under sea level uh, quite a bit. Um, I have to look at my notes here to see how much because I've never been there. It's 800 feet below sea level. Okay, so the best I can do, and I haven't been there, is to go on these reports. But if somebody, and I know there's people here that have been there, and you would be able to testify and say, yeah, it is, you have to go way, way down to get from one to the other. So there's these details in Scripture about when they go up to a city or down to a city. You know, these are people that knew what they were talking about, when you're going uphill and when you're going downhill. Matthew, Mark, and John refer to the Sea of Galilee which, if you look at the Sea of Galilee, it is actually, it, it's quite kind of grandiose to call it a sea. I mean, it, it, it's a big lake, but it's about 13 miles long. But think about this. If you were someone that you haven't traveled a lot, maybe you've never even been to the, to the Mediterranean Sea, you would think that, um, you know, the Sea of Galilee, this would be the big sea. This would be what would impress you. It would, and so it'd be, it would make sense for you to refer to it as, you know, the big C. It'd be kind of like someone from, let's say, Middleville referring to Grand Rapids as the big city. You know, relative to our area, Grand Rapids is the big city. But if you were closer to, you know, Chicago or Detroit, you wouldn't automatically just think of Grand Rapids as the big city. Uh, it's interesting, Luke doesn't refer to... Um, it is the Sea of Galilee. He refers to it as a, as a lake. Um, and that could be because he was probably from Antioch, which was near the Mediterranean. And so if he was familiar with that, he wouldn't think of uh, Galilee as much as, as, the, uh, as the sea or the big sea. The gospel writers, they knew about alternate travel routes from Galilee to Jerusalem that would people take would, to avoid Samaria. There's a lot of different things. I mean, you can have the Lord of the Rings, and it can have a map, and it can have rivers, and it can have all these different little places, okay? Um, but there is no Mordor. You can't really find that. You can't find Gondor. Uh, it, it, these places don't match up, but the biblical cities actually map up to reality. You can find so many of these places, and archaeologists have found even many of the obscure ones. So it indicates these things happen in real time and place. And these writers were either really well acquainted with the land, as if they were there, they were eyewitnesses, or they reported them really, really accurately from others who were really well acquainted with the land. This fits well with the Gospels as we know them, believing they came from who we believe they were written by. 
it doesn't make sense for someone writing this from a, from a distant area or writing it centuries later. There are intimate knowledge of, of people and of, and of names, uh, all the different rulers that are listed in Scripture that map up to, to history. Um, I read about even studies that were done about the, the common, most common names in this area in uh, Palestine at this time period, that they can do surveys, uh, not just from Scripture, but from other records, to know, okay, what was, were the most common names? And the proportions of the names that you see in Scripture actually map up to what we know from other sources were the most common names. If you were writing something, you know, fictitious, you might have a bunch of, you know, different names or made-up names. Uh, but what we see in Scripture, well, the most common name uh, for a male at that time in that place was Simon. And so one of the things you notice in Scripture is when somebody is named Simon, they, they almost always have some kind of other description so you know which Simon it is. It wasn't as if you could say, well, just there's Simon and it's a rare thing. You have to say, okay, this is Simon Peter or Simon the Zealot or Simon the Leper or Simon the Cyrene. And that really maps up with really closely to what we know about the proportion of the actual names that people had during this time. Whereas some of the fake writings that came about later on uh, would have just unrealistic names or, or Greek names that were imported and used in. So just all these things that sometimes seem subtle to us, but that are just marks of authenticity, that these really were by eyewitnesses that knew what they were talking about. Um, you know, even Jesus. You know, Jesus is, is basically the, the name Joshua. And so it was actually a pretty common name. And so in Scripture, when you see Jesus being referred to with other people, he is usually referred to as, you know, Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the, the son of Joseph. Because they couldn't just say, um, it, during Jesus' lifetime, when they're talking about him, Jesus, because they would say, well, which Jesus? We know a lot of people that are named that. They had to describe, you know, specifically who they were talking about. I mean, afterwards, Jesus became less of a common name because it was specifically for Jesus Christ. Uh, but during that time, it was common. So just other little things that um, are marks of authenticity, there's knowledge of different beliefs and customs and, and details, uh, specific Jewish customs. Jesus mentions the Pharisees debating about the tithing of dill and cumin, these little spices, and being legalistic about you know, how to tithe you know, their, their little spices. And this was actually a debate that the Pharisees had, that the writers of Scripture um, and Jesus knew about. Uh, it would be tough to have that detail if this was made up far away and at a different time. Zacchaeus, in his story, climbs up a sycamore tree in Jericho. Sycamore trees don't grow in Italy or Greece or in Turkey, but they do grow near Jericho. Again, if you were writing this from a different time and a place, it was just one of those details that you might not know or you would possibly get wrong. You ever look at some of the artwork about Scripture done you know, during the Middle Ages or even the Renaissance period, and they, you know, have paintings of biblical figures, and they're basically wearing European armor and all kinds of things. It's like, okay, that is not historically accurate. 
I mean, that's what happens when we try to describe this with our limited knowledge. But the Bible writers, they don't get these details wrong. They give it correct, get it correct. Uh, one book on apologetics that I looked at, uh, it's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. In this book, it gives six pages of historical details, uh, 59 of them total, just from the Gospel of John that are historically confirmed details that are just in there in the Gospel of John, just marks of authenticity that I think back up that these were legit eyewitnesses. There's also something that can be called undesigned coincidences. And this is a little bit subtle, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, These are things that you have more than one Gospel writer, okay? We have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, I mean, we also have, well, no, you know, Peter writing and others. Uh, but sometimes there are details in one gospel that are just kind of thrown in there. And we find out from another gospel how they really match up really well and sometimes explain each other, which makes sense if it's both based on reality. But if each of these people were just writing their own little myth and making something up, you wouldn't have these little details that match up so well from different authors. Uh, One example, in the feeding of the 5,000, this is the only miracle that Jesus is recorded as doing in all four of the Gospels except for the resurrection. He feeds uh, 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. It's recorded in both math, excuse me, both in Mark and in John it just throws in this random detail about there being green grass or much grass. And it just kind of throws it in and doesn't really make anything too much of it. There's a lot of people there and there's, there's a lot of grass. There's green grass. In Mark 6, it also mentions there were many people that were coming and going and there was no leisure to eat. So there's some of these details. And what, what's the point of all these? But John, his gospel alone in John 6, 4, mentions the detail that the the Passover was coming. So if this was the Passover, this was in springtime, this would explain why there were all these people traveling and coming and going because they're traveling to the the Passover. This would also tell you what time of year it was. And this would be in the springtime, and the rainiest months would have been right prior to this, which explains why there is lots of grass and green grass that wouldn't be there during the dry summer. Again, just small details, but we see how all these things just kind of line up perfectly. And they're, if they're between different gospel writers, it'd be hard to, and they're making these things up, it'd be so hard to coordinate all these little details. In that story also, it tells us that in John's gospel, that Jesus asked Philip where to buy bread. And so it's, it's Philip. But we also learn earlier from the Gospel of John in a different place, in chapter 1, we're told that Philip was from Bethsaida. Okay, we're thinking, what's the deal there? But in a different Gospel in Luke 9.10, it tells us that the miracle was located near Bethsaida. So you put these things together, and it makes sense that Jesus is asking Philip, who was a local, you know, where he would go to, to buy bread. So again, it's all these just little kind of random details that seem like they don't make have a lot of meaning to them, but you put them all together from the different gospel writers, and it just gives indication that this is based on actual events in a way that 
you wouldn't have this if they were just each making this up. So the Gospel writers, this was eyewitness testimony. Our second point, through Scripture then, we have eyewitness testimony of the coming of the Son of God. The Scripture is the reports that we have of these things. Let's read this, passage, this part again. Verse 18, it talked about the coming of the Son of God. We were eyewitnesses of this majesty. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. So Scripture is the eyewitness reports. We see this. When you read Scripture, this is not like the telephone game. A lot of times people try to pretend that, oh, the reports that we have in Scripture, you know, it's, it's, it's like you play the telephone game as a kid. And, you know, everyone's in a, a big circle and you whisper one little message and then the kid whispers it to someone else, you know, and they get it a little bit wrong and by the time it makes it all the way through, it's just mangled. And they say, no, your historical account, it's mangled because it's from one person to the next to the next. That's not how it is. We have scripture, and if we have this, we have the writings that, well, Second Peter, that Peter wrote, and we are reading the firsthand account of one of the eyewitnesses. If you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, and if you're looking at it, it is right from Peter to you. It is not through this giant chain uh, being passed down and, and modified. We're able to look at the, what the eyewitnesses have actually said. And if you take time to read Scripture and look at it, you know, it's going to have, you're going to recognize that this has a ring of historical truth to it. I think a lot of people that reject Scripture haven't spent time really reading it and looking at it and seeking to understand what it's actually saying. But one of the eyewitness reports is that the Son of God has come. He has come into this world. And Peter specifically testifies to what is called the, the transfiguration uh, the word for transfiguration in Greek is metamorphosis. We think of that as like a, a changing. And this is this time when Jesus, uh, he, he goes up and he takes along three of the apostles with him. And he uh, has this transformation that happens to him. It's recorded in three different places in addition to this. Uh, let me flip to Matthew's account and read this for you. Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, okay, Peter, and James and John, his brother, and led him up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So Jesus, most of the time when he was on earth, he had his glory as the eternal son of God veiled. You couldn't tell by looking at him who he really was. But it's like here the, the, the veil was lifted and there was a glimpse of this is his, his divine majesty and what he's really like. And it was, it was something, it, it blew away Peter to, to see this. Um, if he had any doubt in his mind that this was the son of God, uh, he had even greater assurance at this point uh, because of what he saw. This is not something that you can, that you can fake. Uh, 
it says, and behold, there appeared with them Moses and Elijah talking with them. So Moses and Elijah, they, they appear and they're talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make uh, three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So not only does this manifestation happen to Jesus, which would be an indication this really is God, but also then the voice of God the Father, uh, in case there was any doubt, says, This is my Son, and I am well pleased with him. Stamp of approval upon him and everything that he claims. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touching them said, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. We'll stop reading right there. So it's an account of this, uh, this happening. So they see this unveiled glory. And in each of the accounts in Scripture, this happens after... Uh, Peter's confession that he recognizes that uh, that Jesus is the Christ, that and the Lord tells him that God had let him know this, but now God is giving him this visible manifestation uh, so that he knows this is not just a good guess that Peter made. It is not just something that Jesus is just claiming, but this transfiguration just Think of the assurance of faith that Peter would have after this. You know, seeing this, hearing these things, the voice from heaven. One thing I want to point out too, um, in Second Peter, he quotes it as, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This actually doesn't match exactly any of the accounts that are in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. When we look at those, each of those are a little bit different. Uh, Matthew says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Mark, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Luke, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then Peter says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so these are, they're not contradicting each other. But I think what we can see by this is that each of the kind of authors here is kind of giving a, I believe, a divinely inspired kind of summary of probably the full message that was said which is probably a little bit longer. Uh, Matthew's would be pretty close to the full thing. Uh, maybe a mention there as well, you know, being chosen. But I think what we see from this is that Peter is not just copying Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He's going by his, his own memory. He's going by what he remembers, and he's summarizing it uh, himself. And so he is claiming this as this points again, that he is an eyewitness. He's not just getting this from some other source. He's going on his recollection and, and summarizing it in his words. But the author here is claiming that he actually saw these things, that he is an eyewitness. He is an ear witness, too, of the voice that he heard. So even though there are Bible scholars that say, well, we know that Second Peter really wasn't written by Peter. It was written way later, and we got our reasons for that. If Second Peter was not written by Peter, it was written by a lying liar from Liartown, okay? <laughs> because he is totally claiming that he's an eyewitness and he saw these things. And so you can either believe it or you can say you are a liar and you're evil for making this stuff up. But we believe that he isn't. 
He's reporting to us these glorious things that he has seen. And because it is Peter, he is reminding us of this because he wants us to have the same assurance of faith that he has. That's the whole point of why this is in this flow of thought in Second Peter. So some just final applications to wrap this up. The Christian hope is real. Okay, your faith is grounded in fact. This is not a matter of, of wishful thinking. It's not you believe this because this makes your life feel better and makes life easier for you to cope with your problems in life. No, this is, this is real. This whole uh, study in Second Peter, we've been saying there's two things that are repeated themes. One is uh, having certainty, being set firm, and the other is knowledge, truth, that keeps talking about this. And Christian, your faith is set firm in actual truth, true truth, not make-believe truth. This is objective truth. It's not subjective. It's not merely personal. It's not your personal taste of which story you like the best. This is history. It's not mere legend or fantasy or, or myth. Again, it's reality, not wishful thinking. It's, it's fact. They're not making this up. This is true, and it's true for everyone. We also see from this that Christ's first coming was a real historical event on earth. When Peter gets to chapter 3, he's going to talk about the second coming. I think it's a big reason he wrote this. I think many of these false teachers that we're going to see in chapter 2 were probably denying or, or casting doubt on the second coming of Christ. But Peter is saying, hey, the first coming of Christ, this was something that was real in time and space. You could mark when it happened on a calendar and on a map. And in the same way, the second coming of Christ is going to be just as literal. It is going to be a real historical event as well. So live your life as if that's going to be the case because it is. Don't just assume that this life the way it is is how it's going to be and living after the, the lusts and the passions of this world. There's going to be a time very quickly everything is going to change when Christ returns. And keep reminding yourself of these truths, of these things. Peter is saying this because he wants his readers to have the same assurance that he has. He saw these things. Remember Pastor Nick's message from last week? It kept mentioning in those verses that Peter said, I always intend to remind you of these qualities. He wanted us to be established in the truth. I say these things to stir you up by way of reminder. And at the end, it said, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall these things. And then it goes on and says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. This message is giving the reason for the message from last week. The reason we're supposed to remind ourselves of these things is because these things really happened. They really are true. And therefore, your faith can be more solidified, deeper in assurance, when you realize these things are grounded in history, in reality. These things actually happened, and they're verified by eyewitnesses. So Christian, your Christian faith is firm. You can have deeper assurance. You can have assurance that gets you through the troubles in life. 
You can have assurance that helps you to say no to worldliness, to live your life for Christ in all things. Your Christian faith is firm because it is grounded in reality. And we know this because we have eyewitnesses that recorded this, and we have this in Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise and thanks. We thank you for Scripture and what it is, that it is the historical account of eyewitnesses who were there. We thank you for Peter, that was one of the three that, that saw the transfiguration. And we think of how he must have had so much assurance in his faith after seeing this. We can realize that through the Word of God and the Holy Spirit that tells us in our hearts that these things are true, that we can have that same assurance. We are not engaged in wishful thinking. We are not living for a fantasy that may or may not be true. But these things happened. And Lord, we thank you that these things happened, that Jesus really came for us, that he really lived a perfect life, that Jesus Christ really did give himself on the cross in the place of sinners, that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead, and that Jesus Christ having ascended to heaven, is really coming back one day. And we long for his appearing. We set our hearts and our eyes on you. Open our eyes. Help us to believe and give us assurance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.